Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to another Financial Times management blog audio interview. You can find the blog at www.ft.com forward slash management blog. My name is Adam Jones. I'm here with Ben Heineman, who was, for the best part of two decades, General Electric's General Counsel. In that capacity, he worked under Jack Welsh and Jeff Immelt. He retired from the company at the end of 2005 and is now a senior fellow at Harvard University. We're here to talk about how lawyers within big companies can make sure that employees are complying with the law without compromising the performance of their business. Let's start with GE. Uh, the in-house legal that team there is vast, isn't it, Ben? How does it compare in terms of the numbers of attorneys to the biggest law firms in the U.S.? Uh, when I left GE in 2005, we had about 1,200 lawyers all across the globe. GE is 320,000 people total in 100 nations. About half of our lawyers were offshore in terms of the United States, um, and that's about half the size of a firm like Clifford Chance, but it's certainly one of the largest law firms in the world if you looked at it as a law firm as opposed to a department, and it's the second largest uh, in-house legal department. Um, and it's uh, quite a tightrope that um, in-house corporate lawyers have to walk, isn't it, um, where you have to answer to impatient and strong-willed uh, uh, CEOs who rarely want to hear the word no, but similarly um, CEOs are likely to have a higher tolerance for risk than lawyers, um, often with justification. I mean, when you were uh, working with uh, Jack Welsh and Jeff Immelt, how did you go about uh, walking this tightrope? Well, let, let me step back for a minute in answering that question. I think the critical thing is the CEO has to believe in fusing two fundamental goals, high performance with high integrity. That's really where it begins, and I might as a, just an advertisement say that I have a new book out called High Performance uh, with High Integrity, which is published by the Harvard Business uh, Press. And the reason I mention that is that the book gives a framework about how the CEO has to look at this set of issues. The lawyers and, the, and in fact, the finance function and the HR function only fit in with that broader framework. So the fundamental commitment of the CEO has to be high performance with high integrity. One of the critical ways, one of the key principles in achieving that is to understand that the general counsel, chief lawyer, the CFO have to play two roles, the partner role and the guardian role, and that they are somewhat in tension. And the CFO and the general counsel have to have the ability to be partners with the CEO to help them accomplish business goals, of course. But at the same time, they really are the guardians of the company. They have to be able to stand up and say no. They have to stand up and say, this is black and we can't go to black. Or stand up and say, on this particular rule, um, it's very gray. And do we want to take this amount of risk? Or should we make it a little less gray by changing the terms of the deal or the proposal or whatever it may be and have it be a little uh, less gray? I always felt that the key uh, job was to first be a great partner and have the trust so that you were not just uh, a naysayer um, sitting in your office by yourself and excluded from uh, meetings, but at the same time that I had to give the CEO options when the hard questions came because unless it was black and white, the CEO is the person who gets to choose how much risk, either in terms of law or ethics or reputation, uh, the company is willing to take. Right. 
So, so you would have one, your own firm recommendation, but then a, a palette of, of options that, that, that they could choose from. Yes, indeed. I've always felt that my job, again, assuming we're not in a black and white situation where something's just flatly illegal or something's clearly unethical according to our own standards, where the situation was gray, I always felt that my job was analytic first, that I had to expose what were the critical facts and not bury the poor person you know, in, a, in an encyclopedia of data number one. Number two, give that person differing options with varying degrees of risk. So the, the analytic job was first. The recommendation was second, actually. Um, of course, I would have a point of view, but I really felt my f first job was to be honest about what the choices were facing the company, what levels of risk. Mm -hmm. Now, you suggested in the book that the general counsel and also the chief financial officer uh, should be given regular meetings with the board where the CEO wouldn't be present. Uh, and that, that was uh, one way you suggested of uh, making the general counsel and also the CFO uh, sufficiently independent of the CEO. Uh, are there many companies where, where that is practiced these days? And, and are there difficulties uh, involved in that in the sense that the CEO might feel undermined by that kind of arrangement? It's a very important question. In the U.S., in the wake of Enron, the audit staff and the CFO often meet now alone, with at least with the audit committee of the board. My suggestion only takes it one step further, which is that the general counsel several times a year ought to have the opportunity to be interrogated privately uh, by the board without the CEO there. I think that the reality is you have to have the trust of the CEO, and that's true of the CFO as well. So to the extent that these meetings would be seen as undermining that trust, they're clearly not a good idea. On the other hand, I believe that a strong CEO who believes in this kind of framework will encourage uh, the, C the general counsel and the CFO to have these kinds of meetings. And indeed, the CEO may ask what they're about, but in a certain sense, it gives the general counsel and the CFO a certain amount of, 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 of power, if you will, with the CEO because the CEO knows that you're going to be meeting with the board. Like all these things in these relationships, very delicate. Um, I can talk about it. It's hard to prescribe. A lot of it's chemistry, uh, not prescription. Uh, but I think, I think it actually can work uh, quite well. And the board does have this responsibility, of course, of overseeing uh, these issues, although the CEO is the one responsible for driving them into the company. And are there companies where uh, that arrangement is followed, where there will be separate meetings? Uh, yes, though it's uh, at the moment it is a minority. It's, a, one, of, it's one of the s uh, suggestions I make in the book that I think should be adopted. But the reality, however, is that many general counsels in the United States are secretaries to the board, and so they are part of the board culture. They go to every board meeting. They go to the board outings. They go to the board dinners. And so it happens somewhat informally already anyway. Um, many directors would call me privately and ask me questions. They weren't trying to go around uh, Welch or Immelt, but they didn't want to bother Welch or Immelt. There was some complicated issue or some issue of concern with them where they felt that I had special expertise or knowledge, and so they would call me privately. So it happens to some extent informally in any event. Now, you've talked in your book uh, about emerging markets as being something that, uh, when you are at GE, uh, particularly kept you awake at night. Can you just expand on that? Well, certainly. I think that uh, the difficulty it faces the major corporations today is largely uh, because the business and society issues have radically changed in importance and salience uh, since 10 years ago, without, without a doubt. Um, and these issues are uh, basically because they're partly they're complex. There's much more media attention to them. There are many more NGOs. Shareholders are much more concerned about them. That would be true in the U.K. or the U.S., when you go overseas, of course, you have basically rule of man, not law. Uh, you've got corruption. You have uh, supplier problems. Uh, you have uh, public policy issues which are very untransparent. 
Um, almost everywhere you go in an emerging market, whether it's China or Indonesia or Malaysia or Thailand or even India, um, the uh, threats to your integrity are much greater than they are in the U.S. or the U.K. So you have to have special vigilance, special processes, special training and education for leaders, and yet we tend to under-resource those markets um, because they're new rather than over-resourcing them, as we should to some extent. It's understandable that you under-resource them, but that just creates problems. We cannot fairly throw managers into tough markets, tell them to have performance with integrity, and not give them the training and the resources to do it. And so that is really a critical problem that CEOs at the top of the company have to recognize. You can't do this on the cheap. You can't do Western China on the cheap. You can't do Malaysia on the cheap. You have to do it the right way. And that's quite a big uh, expectation, however, given that, um, yes, sales would be growing quite strongly in those markets, but you wouldn't necessarily have the, the profit generation to comfortably support those kinds of overheads. Fair question again. I think one of the uh, dilemmas that multinationals have created for themselves is that they talk about growth in the emerging markets, but the fact is the margins, for a variety of reasons, may not be what they are in the home country or in Europe. Um, and so, yes, the margins are thinner and costs are very important. On the other hand, I would submit that the cost we're talking about is not like plant and clip equipment. This, these are personal costs. These are basically human resources costs to do the training um, and education and hiring the right kind of people. Um, the whole theory of the book that I've written is that you basically should implement all of these processes, these integrity processes, into business, the fusion of performance with integrity. When that happens, then it happens sort of automatically. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not a special thing that the human resources, legal or finance staffs do. It's something that the business people do day in and day out because it's part of what their task is if there's proper leadership from the business leaders starting with the CEO. And in your book, you've uh, talked about several incidents that, that you were involved with um, at uh, GE where you were involved in the, the kind of cleanup of um, certain um, episodes which jeopardized the company's uh, reputation. Um, how did you go about what, what were the, the, the bigger incidents that you had to deal with and um, what were the kind of the, the broad lessons, the broad tips that you could share from having dealt with them? Um, again, I want to emphasize to the listeners that uh, in this book, I do not claim that GE is the model or did everything right. In fact, I am very ready to admit that we made many mistakes. And the debate about this third dim dimension of governance, about the CEO driving performance with integrity, is should begin, perhaps, with the things that we tried to do. It does not end there. So that, let me make clear at the outset that I speak with some humility. And that's partly because, of course, uh, uh, no human institution is perfect. We're never going to repeal human nature. We're always going to have an irreducible minimum of issues. One of the most dramatic was a case where we basically, uh, uh, our manager in Israel uh, conspired with the procurement general in the Israeli Air Force and basically stole money from both the Israeli governments and the United States government. Uh, and the, the fundamental moral there was that we hadn't created the proper culture, that this went on for many years, that many people knew about it, but no one reported it. And we're talking about tens of millions of dollars. This was a significant amounts and highly embarrassing. Um, and so the fundamental question was, what should we do with the senior leader of the military engines business in this case, who had, did not act, uh, uh, take any acts of, of commission, uh, did nothing wrong, but presided over a culture that was clearly uh, incomplete and inadequate? And the answer was we fired him um, because we sent him, wanted to send a message to the whole company that you not only have to sort of speak the talk, uh, you have to have the tone at the top, 
but you have to drive it into the business and have it be a reality through your actions. And this was such a deficient culture um, that we asked this person to leave. And so I think the message, to answer your question, is really the creation of culture through action, not just aspiration. You need to express the aspirations properly, but without uh, sort of real action, resources, people, systems, processes, A players, um, it's eyewash. Uh, tone at the top is just something that uh, is just a phrase. You have to make it a reality. And one in interesting recommendation that you did make in the book was that uh, CEOs should not yield to the temptation to start making calls to people within their company directly um, who might be involved um, in, in, a, in an episode um, because that implicates them too closely and they might end up making the situation worse. Could you just expand a little on that? Yeah, uh, you know, CEOs have this uh, uh, tendency because they have so much more power than, say, political figures do of uh, wanting to solve all problems immediately. And so that they hear that there is a uh, issue in the company about embezzlement or bribery or whatever the case may be. And does uh, at least some want to pick up the phone and start in interviewing employees? Well, that can easily be interpreted by the regulators as suborning perjury. Uh, they don't know how to necessarily ask the questions. They may be sort of saying, you really did that? <laughs> or, or did you do that? Or is that, are you telling me the truth? Or you, ways, things that could be misinterpreted by the employees, it's, uh, in, or by the regulators, excuse me. These are really matters of, of sort of technical competence when you're doing an investigation of a serious matter that should be handled properly by the finance, audit, legal staffs, uh, asking the right questions in the right way, um, often with legal privilege, at least in the United States, not necessarily for companies in Europe, as uh, your listeners may well know. And one final question. The, the, the film uh, Michael Clayton um, was a big success recently and won an Oscar. Um, the villain of the film um, was the general counsel of a big company um, who was willing to use a hitmen um, to keep a, a scandal quiet. How do you feel about Hollywood uh, demonizing your old job? Well, I, I think it's uh, consistent with Hollywood's general view of corporate America, which has been probably critical by and large for a long period of time. Um, uh, doesn't surprise me. Um, she was actually very well dressed and quite uh, <laughs> quite presentable until the end, when it was clear that she had sinned <laughs> in a big time fashion. Um, so I had to say I, I looked at it with some amusement, but I took it not just with a grain of salt, with a, but with a pillar of salt, if I might uh, quote the Bible. Um, so it, it was uh, it was Hollywood, and I don't think anyone takes Hollywood's commentary on uh, sort of social issues terribly seriously most of the time. Yeah. Um, there is a perception that uh, in-house lawyers are, are, are secret keepers in, in some ways. And, um, and then there is also, and, and I don't know to what extent this is actually general practice within uh, big companies, but the, the, the thought that maybe in, in some cases uh, surveillance firms might get involved, likes of Kroll. I mean, w w would you have used um, the firms like Kroll when you were at GE? Um, indeed, um very early on, I was faced with a number of issues involving private investigators, and I said that no one in the company would be allowed to hire a private investigator unless I had cleared it, that I was loath to use them because they would often use improper techniques or for improper purposes. Um, so I had to personally improve them. Usually it was just to gather public information about uh, someone on the other side of a deal, if we, and, and I was really loath to use them. Let me go back to the, to the general counsel, Michael Clayton. Again, I want to say that the, I speak a lot to lawyer groups and to professional groups. And again, this concept of the, of the guardian as well as the partner is critical. You must go into these jobs recognizing that you represent the company in the broad um, and uh, the public interest in the broad. And you must have sort of courage and independence and ability to speak out or you shouldn't be in these jobs. 
in light of Enron and other things, the lawyers and many gatekeepers, the finance people, have been sharply criticized. I mean, this is a very big question, whether people inside the company in these positions will be compromised by fear of the CEO, by uh, delayed compensation that they won't get unless they stay in place. These are very real issues. And I think that uh, people who take these jobs have to look in the mirror before they do and know that there will come a point when they have to quit. And they may lose uh, their uh, financial well-being. Uh, they may lose their friendships. They should not do it otherwise, because we've seen the case in, the, in, in since Enron in the United States, as many CFOs as CEOs have been indicted. Um, with the backdating scandals, there are now more general counsels being indicted. Um, to me, this is a travesty that the, those two jobs especially, I say, are guardians of the company. And if they get implicated and are basically have round heels, pardon my phrase, um, it is not the way that they should be conducting their jobs. And people really – I, I try to talk to general counsels all the time about this, about the importance of being the partner, yes, but only up to a point, and really being the guardian first. Ben Hyman, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.